1: i'm matt kirkegaard and that's just what we're here to do talk about beer and especially hops this week as we catch up with journalist author and i think it's fair to say industry legend stan hieronymus stan is a professional journalist and amateur brewer who has made beer his beat since 1993. he is perhaps best known for his influential books brew like a monk brewing with wheat and also for the love of hops he also maintains one of the surviving high quality beer blogs Appalachian beer and also his hop-specific newsletter, Hop Queries, all of which you'll find links to in the show notes. This conversation was one that I sometimes record for our Brewery Pro channel, when there's a more brewer-specific topic that is topical and interesting, but a little too specific for a beer as a conversation. While this conversation fits that category, on reflection, it's an interesting one that deserves the broader audience that this channel offers, and most importantly, will be interesting for many of our listeners. That said, I hope you do find it as interesting as I did. Stan Hieronymus, I feel like I know you very well because I've been reading about uh, you and uh, in fact on my bookshelf I've got a number of your books and it's great to finally chat. Thanks for having me. I look forward to when I can come down and do it in person. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I actually get the feeling that people are a little bit covided out, so I was going to talk about how things were going, but there's been so much discussion about it. I think uh, everyone has a reasonably good uh, take on it, but one of the topics that um, I've just been seeing over and over again uh, in, in, in a building wave is this idea of proprietary versus public hops, um, and... I was intrigued a couple of weeks ago. Somebody referenced something that you'd written about it and very unusually for Twitter, you said, oh, let me get back to you on a, in a more reflective way. And I never saw that tweet come out. Um, well, I didn't do it in the tweet. I think I did
0: mention it in somebody's comments and then, of course, in my newsletter. Right. Um, and, so, um, and, and the tricky thing, so that discussion, even though, you know, when it first popped up, uh, it was like a few days before, and then it was a Saturday when the other discussion started out, and and by then it was Saturday afternoon, and I was drinking beer and, and cooking it <laughs> on the grill, which is definitely not the time to get engaged trying to explain something in 240 characters. At a time. If
1: only more people took that approach, I think the world would be a much happier place. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess to set the scene, a number of U.S. hop growers – um, in analysing the data from their 2020 harvest, and uh, as the figures finally came out, it was quite interesting that a number of the, the, the hop growers really shared the, 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 the breakdown. Um, so maybe you can sort of give us a little bit of a, a background to the growth of proprietary hops uh, in, in the US. It starts,
0: the first private breeding program actually began in 1978, and that was at John I. Haas, uh, and it happens that um, that Haas is actually part of the hop breeding uh, company now, HBC. So you see when, when these, uh, they're experimental hops, and people get all excited about, say, HBC 692. And then eventually it gets a name, it gets called Talus. Um, and that's one thing the hop breeding company has done really nicely is, marketing those hops so when they come to market people are excited about them and are using them Um, and it wasn't so so that you know the first house hops were in in some cases that they just wanted something that had a little higher alpha acids so it it was sufficient and was they were basically breeding a commodity uh, because those high alpha hops, that's a, they, they sell on the basis of having the alpha acid. There's nothing else to distinguish them. But for a farmer, that means you can grow something and make more uh, dollars per hectare. And um, so so that is the peel. And, it, and it's it's funny to think about. I was just looking at Nelson Sauvin, And of course, through its breeding process in the New Zealand program, in, in the 80s and 90s, that they were they had two goals. One was replicating the aroma of the traditional European hops which are not at all like New World Ops. And high alpha. And Nelson Saubin was in the high alpha category. It's not until later they said, ooh, it has this different, unique aroma, which until two thousand was considered bad. And <laughs> now it's what everybody wants.
1: It, which is a little bit I, I, and correct me i'm i'm very loath to restate things that i've read on the internet um particularly yeah. to an expert but that was a, a a little bit with cascade um in in the sort of in the 80s is that correct or
0: no it's um it, it, it's it's uh, a a wild new zealand male, i don't know what it is and smooth cone and the, smooth cone was a mother and smooth cone was so what happened with uh Originally, New Zealand, that they got hops from England, no surprise. Mm. Uh, those hops did not grow as well. So then they imported American cluster. And American cluster is a combination. Uh, you know, something came over from England. Um, it, it crossed with uh, wild American hops back in the 19th century. So it again, it has some American in them. So let's go back six million years. That's when hops uh, originate in what is now Mongolia. And a million years ago, plus some of them migrated into Europe, traveling rather quickly uh, through like Caucasia. Um, and we just call those humulus Um Then uh, a little bit later, maybe 500,000 years later, some moved west. Uh, some stayed in Japan, and, and that's one branch, and some moved in uh, to North America. And they're considered three different varieties. We could just call them American wild. People know Neomexicanus the best because it's mm-hmm. getting attention now. But the key hop in there that it turns out that goes from Manitoba to England to be bred is up from Manitoba. And it, it could have been a lupuloids, could have been a combination of Neomexicanus lupuloids. But the key thing is it had these different genetic characteristics which we now know those hops are generally higher in geranial, and they're more likely to contain sulfur compounds also known as thiols. The European hops do have thiols but they are uh, not they do not end up in beer as easily and they can have uh, some geranial, but not as much geranial. So the background on Nelson Sauvin to go back to your original question is from the American cluster. Uh, something happens in there to give it some of those unique uh, qualities.
1: Which, which is interesting, uh, talking about the terroir. Um, you know, wine has built itself on terroir, but there, there seems to be a lot of debate uh, around exactly what you know the, the growing regions and conditions um, bring to, to, to hops and whether they, there, there is replicability between different uh, geographies.
0: Well, there's, there's no doubt that, that the geography affects that cascade uh, being the perfect examples in New Zealand. They've renamed their cascade is so different than the cascade in the United States. And if you have a cascade grown in Kent, uh, it's obviously different than a cascade grown in the Yakima Valley um, uh, or a Michigan cascade or whatever. So they're, they're, they're affected by many things, which is it's mostly environment. You know, it's not, not a magical thing. It's not the people who live around there. that <laughs> make um, You know, it's their, they have different day lengths. They're uh, different distance from the equator. They have a different amount of sunshine, a different amount of rain, and they're in different soils. Uh, so all of those are factors, but they can actually uh, impact the genes. So genetically, the,
1: the, the contribution that you, you would get from the genes can change it's funny that just this week we had a conversation um podcast with the brewer from little creatures which is a uh a brewery that was foundational to our modern craft beer experience and yep um and he was describing they've over the years started to blend some australian cascade in with their u.s cascade and uh the, the, the brewer um, who's, who's English um, described Australian Cascade as being a little bit more like Kate Blanchett, whereas the US Cascade as being a little bit more Donald Trump, um, which I think was yes. speaking about his uh, robust personality as opposed to it, his... Uh, but it, it was very interesting to hear him sort of talk so differently about um, the, the expressions that they got from what is the, the, the same hop. Yep. Um, it, it's the same hop at the base. Mm-hmm. I read an article recently. It may have been yours in All About Beer magazine, looking at the, the different breakdowns for Cascades grown around the world. Was that your article? Uh, well, it was. I, I I have written
0: about that and recently in a Brewing Industry Guide. We actually had the, the charts that show you um, the different ways that um, that they are perceived, and the, and those came. That's that's something that Barthas did in their aroma compendium
1: right I, I you, you might have been referencing that so well let, let, let's step back talking about proprietary versus uh, oh, sure. um, <laughs> public hops um, so so the breeding prog- programs that started what drove that
0: well in the case of Haas um, they're, they're always working with brewers now the brewers are working with uh, 30 years ago um, or maybe earlier even 30 so, so for instance, um, we'll use Citra as an example. So Gene Probosco had already done some crossing and 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 putting different hops together. So so he had a bit of a family to draw from. Uh, and in uh, 1987, he he takes um, a female middle tobacco so, uh, to back up in 1987, a large brewery. Um, which he didn't say uh, which brewery it is. I've been told by somebody, and this is the easiest way for me to protect a source. I've forgotten who, <laughs> um, that it was bass. And that gives you this, this an idea of the size that they're working on because it's, it's going to be expensive. And, and they say we would like to come up with a, a new aroma hop for our beer, something that's different than other people have. Uh, so he, he begins that process. And in this case, the, the mother is Hallertown Middle crew. Um And uh, it's it, 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 exactly the timing of this. So so if we step back, he, he, he first starts. So for that mother, he needs a male. That male comes from across between U.S. Tet, which is Fuggle, and um, a hop from the public breeding program. So hold that thought the importance of the public breeding program is always there. Um, and, that, and that particular male has been used, for instance, uh, across to create Nugget, across to create Centennial. So that was a pretty good stud male. Mm. Um, it, take a child from that stud male, it, it is crossed with towel. And realize that every time you do this, it takes a few years. You get you get a bunch of seedlings, you pick some of the seedlings from that. From that cross of, of middle through and that the male that comes out of it. The other, you get a whole bunch of children um, that happen to take a female from that and a male from that. So basically a a brother and a sister. They made that cross in 1990. Um, Two years later in the field, Citra is one of the hops in the field. It's not known as that at the time. It's known as X-114. So it goes through this process. It's one of 50 hops that this large brewing company looks at and decides they don't like any of them but gene keeps some i don't know how many but he he definitely keeps this one another brewer comes to him in the 90s says we're looking for aroma hop and he says i have something you know so they grow it up to a little larger amount a few more hills and it gets rejected But he likes it, so he keeps seven hills of it. So he's got this hop on the side. And I believe it's uh, early, it might have been 2000, 2002. He's going to a conference uh, with Pat Ting, who's the hop scientist at Miller Brewing. And Pat says, we're looking for a hop with the citrus sort of character. Gene says, we have just the hop for you. Um, He ships off a few pounds to Miller. They start playing around with it. They kind of like it. They like it enough to pay for propagating and putting it on a larger field, taking care of it, things like that. They made um, a double IPA with it, very small batches. To begin, they're small batches. They're just literally a, a few liters for their first test. And then they, then they make a 10 barrel batch, which would be um, 12 uh, hectoliter And so they did this testing, but they could never agree whether they particularly liked it. Uh, in that period, um, the Haas program and the Yakima Ranches program merge to create HBC. And they're talking to more brewers, and they start putting this, the, and they rename the hop uh, maybe HBC's 394. I don't remember that number exactly. Um, and they start putting that in the hands of brewers, and they say we kind of like this. Um, and in fact, Widmer, Deschutes and Sierra Nevada come up with the money to, to, to grow it in at a larger scale. Uh, and in uh, 2008, it was actually, so in 2007, they, they named the hop. Um, but in, in 2008, Widmer entered a pale ale with this hop, calling it Pale Ale X114, the original name. And it won a gold medal at the World Beer Cup. And it started to get a lot more attention from people. Uh, Sierra Nevada used it in their new beer, Torpedo, uh, and people became more aware of it. So you have this hop that, that the cross is made in 1990. It goes in the field in 1992. It, it's certainly ready for people to be uh, brewing with by the early aughts, but it isn't really used until 2008. And it takes it a long time to become as dominant as it is now. So it's the most grown aroma hop in the world now. Um, Behind that in 2012, uh, the hop breeding company released another hop uh, called Mosaic and it's blown up and it's right behind it. Those are the two biggest reasons that 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 acreage has flipped and looks so dominant. So one thing, you know, when that question was asked on Twitter, and that I can't answer immediately is um, that when you have two hops that dominant, that alone becomes somewhat of a problem. Uh, first, for brewers, they're brewing beers that are pretty similar in flavor. But just getting that quantity grown to where it's consistent, so where, where people know what they're getting, is, um, is more difficult. You start to make your picking windows broader. So what people are getting again is not as consistent. So you, it becomes a, a quality issue. And, and why is everybody brewing with the same hop? Then another thing ongoing with breeding now across many programs is uh, recognizing uh, the need for more diversity, more genetic diversity. Um, you know, as as uh, things like downy mildew that over time, the breeders have found markers uh, that say, oh, here's the genetic marker. And this will help this hop become disease resistant uh, as they're beginning to map the genome more and, and do these. You, you can get um, you can figure out the male, which has always been hard to figure out the male because it doesn't flower and have the cones. Um, so it's not as easily analyzed to make sure both the male and the female have this disease resistant. So if if all your hops, varieties that you're using tend to go to back to only one or two varieties historically, then it makes it easier for uh, diseases or pests. Because uh, remember, a hop field is, that's that's a thousand, these are acres, so I can, so two and a <laughs> I half. can do the conversion. So, so, so uh, uh, more more than two thousand, um, depending on the planet, about, about twenty five hundred plants in a hectare, and that's they're all the same. That's a monoculture, mm-hmm. and monocultures are certainly more easily attacked. Um, and in fact, we look back, all all, all these hops go back to BB one that came out of uh, Manitoba. It's an incredible number of those. Citra goes back to that. Um, you know, Hercules, which is the most grown alpha hop in the world goes, has BB one in it. And the other hop that has been used so often breeding is fuggle from the UK, because it has some disease resistance. Um, so, so many hops go to fuggle. So if you look at a family tree, you're losing a lot of diversity. Um, it is much easier for public programs, however they are funded, um, to say that we're we're not always looking for the next wow aroma, but we have to be supporting all these other things that help hop farmers. So it's uh, having a public program that is vibrant is important. And it's easier to keep that program vibrant if people are using the hops across a range. So if they're no longer interested in aroma hops coming out of the public program, then part of this funded is what they're creating in the Roma hops. That's one of the dangers of shrinking
1: it. It's interesting that you say that because I, as I heard you talking about, um, you know, uh, Mosaic and Citra, um, the, they, they, they were initially rejected because they didn't meet the styles that were popular and they have almost driven, or at least they have grown as certain, you know, hazy IPAs and, you know, the, 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 beer market as in, in what people want. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I guess you could debate endlessly what's driven, what have the, the availability of the hops driven the flavor of the, you know, the, that, that beer style and the popularity of it. But we seem to be going down an alley in, in, in that sense, in that, you know, I, 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 look at how popular some of those IPA styles are, the, are made possible by those hops, but I do worry that there's a fattishness uh, to them, that suddenly they're going to be so ubiquitous, so popular, that there's going to be that swing away from them. And, and does, does that then cause problems for farmers, as we've seen, you know, agronomics, uh, agriculture is boom and bust, and suddenly there are such you know, uh, investments in huge acreages of those hops, that may suddenly evaporate if, if the style changes.
0: That's certainly a potential problem. And you know, w- w- in a way, we were able to ease into this a little bit because in 2007, for a variety of reasons, we had a brief period where hop prices shot up. It's referred to as a hop shortage, a shortage for only a, a few people, but the prices went skyrocketing up and large brewers who were only interested in alpha. So were they, again, buying the commodity would buy anything. They, they would buy aroma hops, even though they were inefficient, had them turned into extract so they could use that extract. They needed that. So the hop farmers were able to get new contracts and generally a contract is going to guarantee that you buy hops for two, three, five years. Those contracts were front loaded in order to pay for expansion. So In the Northwest, many farmers, well, two things happened. First of all, they repaired a lot of stuff that hadn't been fixed because hop prices were depressed for so long. People went out of business, they weren't keeping things up. A lot of hop farmers got well there and they expanded. It it took less than a year for the large uh, companies to realize, they had contracted for way more hops than they needed. Some hops were just left sitting on the vines, as a matter of fact, because it was cheaper to let them rot than to pick them. Um, and that, and, and fields got grubbed out, but the infrastructure was still there. Mm-hmm. The drying because the infrastructure is not just the field. The infrastructure is all the tractors that you need, everything. And, and then, um, the kilns, uh, were for drying. So the equipment to pick, what's known as a picker and then in the kiln. So that's, that's expensive to put in basically. And I got to give you this in, in, um, in acres, because that's what sort of we're. So 600 acres, which would be about, uh, uh, 250 around 250 hectare, it costs $25 million. That's the whole package, the infrastructure, putting that in your first set of plants. So, this infrastructure went in and then it opened up. So when Kraft wanted to expand, there was a space to expand. At the same time, uh, you had the merger in in which InBev bought Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser-Busch had very long hop contracts. Uh, this is true in Germany with Middle for instance, and uh, particularly with Willamette, but certainly some other varieties in the Northwest. They came in, and and they pay farmers. They say we will pay off your contract, but at, at a lower amount. But it frees your fields up. So people who are, we've gone from more than eight thousand acres of Willamette to less than two thousand acres of Willamette. That left more space available for craft to go into for the hops for for the uh, for craft brewers. Um, but. All of those fields, all of that infrastructure was filled up, and then it became much more expensive to build out. And that's what's there now is more expensive infrastructure. Um, so if people can't sell those hops at also a premium price, then the bank is not going to be very happy. And there is the, that potential for hop farmers to go out of business. And then the next time you, you have a, if you were to have more growth or whatever, you um, then there's going to be nobody to grow those hops
1: what's driving the growth of the, the in the expansion um, of hops under acreage in, in, in a world where beer consumption is going down um, per capita um, is it that we're using so many more hops and using hops differently in the in, in the beers that we're making yes
0: um, it, it's that it's that quantity of hops uh, and it's a little trickier to measure right now. For the first time, like since I've been measuring it, the um, uh, Brewers Association found craft brewers hop usage going down. But it's hard that they, they tried to come up with a formula. So in other words, if you're using uh, what are known as advanced products or downstream products, mm-hmm. uh, so basically cryo hops, for example, but any concentrated pellet, um, all these flowable hops, that have eliminated the green matter. Uh, if, if you're using uh, a pound of cryo, that's comparable to two pounds of uh, pellets. And so I'm not sure if their formula is perfect because we've gone in uh, with craft brewers and in that survey, which is only a survey. It isn't like a census of everyone one uh, usage of these advanced products on a percentage of breweries, a uh, basis has gone from about 20% in, uh, 2018 to 56% in 2020. So that's a lot more. It still takes, those hops have to be grown. And then, then the green matter thrown away, uh, you know, it, in, in the processing uh, part. So it is th- the amount of hops being used for each barrel of beer of those beers, even though they are not, you know a large amount on the world's basis so if you're making an an average a world average logger, which is a hard thing to say because you know they're, they're going to be <laughs> higher in germany than they are going to be in china but uh, an average logger and now so that's pounds per barrel that's one <laughs> eight so it's going to use about a half Gram per liter, and for you know just for bittering, that's also two ounces per barrel, which is what you'd be talking about in the United States. A lot of IPAs, um, like Yakum Chief's presentation right now, for their recommendations for dry hopping alone, um, of IPAs, the, the you know the table money, the ante is two pounds per barrel, which is about eight grams per liter compare that to one half and they say two to five barrels so the five is 19 grams per liter compared to half gram per liter and that's the dry hop and it's probably about all they're using the rest is going to be in the whirlpool but their breweries doing twice that their there breweries using 38 grams per liter again compared to that that half gram per liter so that's what's What's
1: blowing it up right now? I I guess in a highly competitive marketplace, um, the the, the cost of hopping regimes like that is is going to put pressure on brewers to find more efficient ways to get that same flavour impact. And you know, you you talked about some of the downstream products, and you know, you, you see the way that the concept of what craft beer is has changed so dramatically. Um, so, brewers are now using enzymes, they're now using adjuncts, they're now using all of these things that 20 years ago were the devils um, of right. the brewing world. Two movement. years ago. Two years, Two years ago, ago, yes. What pressures is that going to put on the hopping industry to develop much more efficient ways to get that flavor? And, and what impact will that have on the, the development of hops?
0: Well, you, you've got in a so it's, it's not just the hop industry, for instance, um, uh, you know, they're, are now looking for yeast varieties. The other thing that's going on is the the hops have, you know, compounds, A, B, C, and D, but they are creating, uh, compounds EFGHI. And that's what people are excited about. Those, those compounds. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that happens in, In the brewing process. And so generally, it's referred to as biotransformation. Um, So they're looking for other vehicles that are better at biotransformation. And they may be yeast driven, they could be enzymes. But the other part, the the reason that these concentrated hops, which would be the the most commonly used are are some sort of uh, lupulin rich pellet could be cryo hops, Lupamax, uh, I think what Haas calls theirs, and, and Hopsteiner has one as well. They also reduce the green matter. So if you put 19 grams per liter of hops in your beer, you lose a lot of beer. Those, those hops absorb the beer. When, when you empty the tank, you've got all the scoop at the problem, bottom, and much of that is sitting in the hops. So that makes it even more expensive to make these beers. And, and so what's really helped fuel this in the U S is the ability to sell beer directly to the consumer. People come to the brewery, stand in line, get their cases of beer and go home. Um, you, the, the nationally distributed hazy beers, uh, with lots of hops, they do have lots of hops, but they don't have nearly as many hops in them when, when that beer has to go to the distributor go through our three-tier system, which means you have two other people taking a cut before it gets to the consumer. Uh, So the ability to sell directly has allowed people to use more hops. They still make as much money. There's just no middleman there.
1: One of the things I'd like to jump back to when we were talking about the rapid expansion of some of these proprietary hops, um, and you talked about things like the size and the scale of, of the farms and the the, the, the spread of the, the growing regions and then even the picking windows that ne- are necessitated by such a huge um, growth for a, a, a product mm-hmm. that has a limited uh, picking window. I had an interesting chat this week um, with Owen Johnson from HPA because mm-hmm. as always happens when the Australian harvest uh, comes around, there is a discussion about selection, which is very common in in, in the U.S. Australian brewers are, are flown over to, to select and uh, you know, rub the, the the hops to choose what they want, um, and sometimes the Australian context is criticised for not allowing that, as if there are you know commercial reasons uh, for for doing that. But then when you speak to Owen, he you know makes a point that. HPA's entire production um, would make it probably a mid-size grower in Yakima um, for for the whole company, um, and also it's not spread over uh, a number of farms. They 100% control everything about the, the the growing, so they've got they exercise much more control over picking windows, um, expanse of the hops. In order to try and standardize the quality across all of their fields, do you have any views about you know the, the idea of selection versus you know blending and the the, the context that they occur in?
0: Well, I, I think one thing for brewers, not every brewer wants the same thing. Mm. So some, not not the best example, but you know what what's changed is Anheuser Busch, which was so gigantic before, um, just dominated the way everybody grew. Even if you didn't sell your hops to Anheuser-Busch, you wanted to sell your hops to Anheuser-Busch. Um, and in the United States, they they did not, you know, the, the way one farmer put it nicely is they did not want their hops to be as expressive. Uh, uh, but I was I was talking to Hop Farm, everything, every time I say last year, it's really two years ago. We just chunked this year out of our lives. I was just talking to somebody, oh yeah, well, I said, no, I was in Germany in 2019 talking to the farmer there, and the same thing was through the middle through. They picked middle through like three weeks earlier. Um, and and that changed many things. When a hop plant, if we go back more than a century and they were on poles, somebody would go up and you cut the, the top the hop, throw it to the ground, it would be picked off the hop, and then it would be put back on the pole. The, the hop remained a living plant a longer period of time. And that the period when it is living is the time when it is uh, storing up material within its rhizome to go through the winter. So what, he, what this German farmer who it changed for him in 2011, he said it was unbelievable how much healthier their middle fruit hops got within two or three years. So th- they were more expressive for two reasons. One, they were pick later, but also it was a healthier plant. Um, so, you know, you had that sort of shift so you can understand why a farmer wants to have as much control as possible because they're concerned about the health of their plant. Mm. You know, this is a plant they expect to get 25 years out of. You've got to grub it out and put another one in. That's a little bit more expense, plus all the labor and things like that. But, you know, the whole quality across fields. field. So, so and maybe I shouldn't say this because maybe everybody in HPA doesn't get to do this and I'm going to get in trouble with Owen. Um, But I, but I, I talked to a brewer who uses a fair amount of galaxy and they do have the choice. They can pick, they, they can choose, they want early pick or late pick and they can also choose the region. So you do have that small amount of time. They would like more, you know, um, it's an excuse to go to Australia. Um, And, you know, I think you're starting to see in New Zealand, which you did not, they did not make selection either. That's my understanding. And now you have some farms that are letting brewers do at least some amount of selection on a long-term basis. But that's, I'll go back to the ad, but uh, is, that's really good because you've got more interaction between your farmers and and your brewers. Uh, understandably, when you're smaller, like HPA, then th- there are other challenges there. So I can see the feel like that, but What's changed in the United States is with craft brewers. So uh, there, there's been a, in 2007, there was a, uh, you had hop scientists from around the world come to Corvallis, Oregon, to talk about a Roman flavor. And then that was repeated in 2017. Uh, at that time in 2007, um, they had a barbecue picnic at a farm not far from Corvallis. Uh, Goshi Farm, which was uh always one of Anheuser-Busch's best farms. They always got the highest marks, really good farmers. And and all of a sudden you had the, the these brewers there asking about hops. And, you know, Gail is going, I've, I've never talked to brewers who actually use our hops. You know, you had no interaction. So then, then it makes it much easier for the farmers um, to get that feedback and make adjustments in the what they're doing with the hops and meanwhile um the brewers appreciate some of the problems the farmers have instead of spending all their time bitching they realize maybe i need to make this change to make this work better or something like that it it makes for a much better relationships and that is one of the pluses uh, uh, a longer term for the uh, for brewers and growers together is to be able to make selection um Now, some brewers are just pedantic and uh, and I can see where a farmer just wants to kick them out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Just stepping back to that idea with the huge expanse of proprietary hops, is there any downside to that in terms of, you know, um, brewers having to pay a price premium because there isn't the flexibility to to grow them anywhere without license over public hops?
0: Well, so in the case of and certainly, HBC is is aware of this, and they continue to to license them to more farms, mm. um, and and they make money off the license. So they make money. There's no reason for them to try and artificially squeeze the market. Um, but th- there certainly are other issues. If you if you don't have a public program, then that that is looking out for these other needs. And somebody when we say a public program, it it can be you know th- th- the, the much of the money for breeding pro that u.s public program comes from it isn't my taxes some of it might be my taxes um but you know heaven forbid my neighborhood's like you know it's a member of the temperance union turns out their taxes are going for hops they are going to be upset um but much of it is paid for by brewers but it's but all brewers are able to share it and it, It's important that they are looking at those other things like disease, um, figuring out the genome. So that's, that's another down the road, which, which can have other benefits. So, so the breeding process is very long. If you can shorten the breeding process, understand for instance, uh, which hops will have a higher yield. You find that gene. You can find the gene that, that gives you tropical, uh, which certainly wouldn't work because it's multiple parts of that you You can put all those things together, and that's better in the long run um, it, as we get climate change um, then then you're going to want to have crops that are uh, more drought resistant so so that's one thing Hopsteiner, which is a private uh, program, has been collecting hops in the American Southwest and beginning to look at things like drought resistance and 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 they have stated that they will also those hops in the public domain.
1: It's interesting. One of the things that you've you, you've said a couple of times is hops were developed, trialled by larger brewers. They dismissed them for... And, and I, I can't remember the term that HPA used because the same thing happened with Galaxy Hops when Foster's CUB trialled it in a beer and it was, you know, it was too flavour-positive. Yeah, too, too, too expressive. And so it, it could easily have been jettisoned, except it was really embraced by, um, it had been used a few small times, but then Stone and Wood in their Pacific Ale really embraced that passion fruit um, and uh, essentially kicked off the hop. I, I guess the flip side of that is that everyone sees the success of one beer, wants to, to do that, and you have almost... A monoculture, um, and I'm starting to read more and more people describing IPAs as being samey. Um, mm-hmm. you know, do you trust the markets to solve those two tensions well, or are we going to see booms and busts as everyone goes into flavors and then we, we go back to? I'm horrible at predicting such things. Um,
0: all honest people but, are. Tra- tra- trends, trends tend to go on longer than we expect. A friend of mine in marketing says, and and I have to agree with that. Uh, but it it is important. It, again, this comes down to communication between brewers and growers, and it's tricky because w- what what the farmers also need to be understanding is what the consumers are going to like, and that's it, hard enough for brewers to figure out and and so i i think part of the approach has been to be conservative and not rush to think that you're you're chasing a fad this is from far i don't want to get in trouble with my friends <laughs> in new zealand but but you know it, the new zealand growers have been more conservative you know have not rushed to, to build out until recently when 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 you suddenly had a, a three good sized farms uh, come online and say, look, here, here's this opportunity uh, and, and we want to sell our hops overseas and, and this, these work really well in the New Zealand climate. And certainly HPA has been expanding uh, as well, but n- and neither one is expanding. I mean, they're putting all these acres on and it doesn't even compare what, what people are doing in the United States, hmm. putting acres on. Granted, it's a larger market, but, uh, but still, it's a bit of a risk.
1: Uh, just one last question before you go looking uh, over the horizon. Uh, are there any emerging hops or em- any emerging trends that are exciting you at the moment? Well, c- certainly the you know the the three hops released this year. So, uh, which I believe if,
0: if I'm saying this a New Zealand style is supposed to say <laughs> Um and then Eclipse from Australia, uh, which is what sixteen was that age that was. Yep. HBA sixteen. Yep. Um, and uh, so Owen had sent me some for a thing we did with experimental hops at a at a brewery in North Carolina, and it, it was definitely a wow hop. And then uh, Talus here in the United States. So those are the the three releases. But then there are a couple of uh, Hop Steiner had a, a new hop last year. I'm thinking that one's Lotus. Um, that, that it that people will use them and think about how to use them in blending. And then hop product-wise, um, we'll see what happens because uh, NZ Hops has this partnership with Totally Natural Solutions in the UK. So Necron will will be able to go farther because we didn't talk about that. That's a different downstream product of, of dosing it. So basically you're just going with, with the essential oil that gives you that aroma. Uh, but Uh, that's also going to be a thing. So it allows people to get more pop um, than they would, say, with just pellets.
1: It's interesting that you, when when you talked about uh, Eclipse, because in terms of hop breeding, that was a fascinating one. It was the second string to... Right. A a hop that uh, HPA was very keen to do because it ticked all of these boxes for them and brewers were initially excited about it, but then... There was this, you know, stepchild or the the, the, sec, the second one that actually grabbed people, and uh, it seems to have really gone down very well. But uh, maybe I'm too contrarian. When HPA released a pack of different beers expressing uh, the the I um, one it was actually a saison. It was its use in its saison that really wowed me um, with that mandarin, uh, sort of flavor, because um, a lot of the the IPAs were going for big and bold, but it was the subtleness of it um, expressed in a saison that just wowed me. But there's certainly potential with some of these hops. There's a,
0: a Fair Isles small brewery in Seattle, like they said, they use a lot of hops. I mean, they'll, they'll you know, I had a beer with, uh, it had three, so uh, uh, 12 grams per liter of Hollertout middle Brew. And it's a wild beer. They're they're all mixed fermentation. They also reuse some of their hops. So after that hops, recognizing it's still got um, 70% of the alpha acids, 50% of the essential oil, although the essential oil is different. So they do a beer with, uh, and then they add other fresh hops in there as well, but where they reuse their mosaic. And it's a really striking beer. So. you know, thinking about how we can shift, use these same hops or hops with this bigger, bolder character, um, then that's potential uh, mixed fermentation has lots and lots of potential, I think.
1: Well, Stan, before I let you go, where can people keep track? You've got your excellent newsletter, uh, Hop Notes, um that i'll I'll link to uh you've got uh, a number of books that i'm sure everyone's aware of and i'll link to those as well but is there anything that you're working on at the moment that you would uh, like to have a bit of a a push yeah not really at exactly this moment since we uh i uh,
0: working on a book that deals more with brewers uh, within our communities and culture Uh, that's like we just chopped a year out so that's now like finish it next fall and it should have been done long ago um, and and then longer term a, uh, a hot variety book that'll give that, that's as much for consumers it is is for brewers where these 250 hot varieties what you can expect from them and a little bit about the background and the, and, uh, the terroir, if you will.
1: <laughs> well, we'll certainly make you know, follow those projects as they come out and uh, help yeah. help you get the word out when you do. But Stan Hieronymus, thank you very much for your time. And hopefully uh, we, we can do this on a semi-regular basis. There, there was oh. so much that <laughs> I haven't even touched on in the time because it's, uh, yeah. as these things always do, the conversation goes where it goes.
0: Yeah, if we can align our clocks, okay, we're set. Or when
1: we can travel, even better. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and that was Stan Hieronymus. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Malt. With over 25 years in the field, Malt is dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and also our partner in beer conversations.